Good morning. That same sheet that Pastor Kyle was just speaking from, if you flip it over, you can see some general stats. This is going to be my anointing report. It's going to last literally 20 seconds. So there's just some markers there that we measure each year so that you know what's going on in attendance and dedication and baptism and all that kind of We've had a good year. Um, one thing to consider here, when you look at like our attendance number, it really isn't flattening out like that. The problem we run into this year is weather. So when you have nine weeks of severely bad weather in the prime time of year, January, February, guess what it does? Statistically, it affects you kind of quite a bit. And so even though that happened, we still uh, show growth. Um, also, this didn't include the last Sunday in, in, in April because we had to do it before uh, to get it to print. So it's not even uh, including some of the higher numbers. So anyway, just so you kind of know that kind of thing. And honestly, I just want to say something from the bottom of my heart. I really just don't care that much. Uh, I care, but it's just whatever. You know what I mean? This isn't who we are. Uh, who we are is what's happening here in the morning and changed lives. Amen. And so that's what we, we want to be focused on as a, as a church. So anyway, we just do this anointing report so that you know what's kind of going on here and get a sense of what's happening at the church. Um, we're going to dive into the message now. So that's my report. Some of you who don't like reports, I should have got an amen. I just got, that's like a miracle, you know, 30 seconds to me. Anyway, we're going to move on here. Uh, we're in week two of our series entitled The Heart of the Matter. And um, this is about uh, spiritual insight into our spiritual well-being. Last week, we looked into an encounter that the Lord Jesus had uh, with a paralytic of his time. This invalid had been uh, immobile for 38 years, and it was a hopeless, despairing, lifestyle that he was living. He was living there by a pool, and when the pool water would stir, it was thought that an angel was stirring the water. First one in the pool got healed, but there was no way he was ever going to make it to the pool because he was immobile. So his life was one of utter hopelessness and despair, and Jesus comes to this man, and he says, do you want to be well? And basically, the question that he was asking, and that we asked ourselves last week, is this, do you want to be whole? Basically, what Christ was saying was, do you want to be more than just healed? Do you want to be well, body, soul, and spirit? He was really asking the question, do you want to move beyond being saved? Uh, are you understanding that you're on a journey to become like, you know, Christ? And in the thought, word, and deed. It, the question's a more encompassing, uh, big question of wellness. And as you and I cooperate with the person of the Holy Spirit, as you and I then, you know, submit ourselves to the Word of God and begin to take the teachings in, as you and I submit one to another, then we become recipients of the grace of God to become people who are well, who are whole. Amen? And that's really the journey that God wants us to take. And as I concluded last week, I, I, want, I gave you this little bit of a challenge. Um, this series that we're in for the next several weeks, it's not for the faint-hearted. It's not a quick fix thing. It's not a I make a prayer and I'm okay uh, kind of thing. It's about saying, I have been soul sick long enough, and I'm just tired of that. And I don't want to be like that anymore. I want to become the person, Jesus, that you intend me to become, and I will pursue that. I will submit to the Holy Spirit. I will address issues in my life that maybe I've never addressed before so that it can be well with my soul. And so for the next several weeks, this is what we're going to look into it is the methodology now, the pragmatic side, actually moving from sickness to health in Jesus Christ, becoming whole. And in another way of saying that is moving from being a vice-dominated person sin-dominated person to becoming a 
virtue-dominated person, one who's living out uh, the, the, the virtues of God. And so for eight weeks, we're going to look into this, including today, all right? The black mamba, uh, an African snake, has one of the deadliest bite, bites of any snake. And it's got a bit of an attitude. Not only does it have this really vicious venom, but the snake actually pursues its prey. It can slither 12 miles an hour. Now, I don't know about you, but that's way too fast for me. I don't, I don't, I'm not a, I don't have a problem with snakes other than when they bite me and they hurt me. I don't like that. Now, we go hiking a lot, Vicki and I, and we go into wilderness regions, and sometimes you go into rattlesnake country, and all you got to do is make a lot of noise. And what happens? The snakes, they don't want to bother you, you don't want to bother them. That's not the black mamba. It has an attitude. It just bites you just because it can bite you. And it, and, and it pursues you. And a snake bite has three elements when you think about it. The snake behind the bite, <laughs> the bite itself, and the venom it leaves behind. And, and, and I love how Pastor Steve Deneff of the uh, College Wesleyan Church kind of made an analogy uh, of the snake, the bite, and the venom to how Satan, sin, and the residuals of sin work in our life. Now, we know that we don't battle against flesh and blood, do we? We battle against that ancient serpent, the devil, and he has attitude. He's not about our welfare. He wants to destroy the people of God. That's his motivation. And if you don't believe that, you're already deceived. And you're not going to enter into the battle you ought to enter into. Because you don't think it exists. And that's exactly what he wants you to think. That that's just a bunch of baloney. He wants you to be ignorant, amen? Because then you're easy prey. And then every now and then what happens to us is we come into a temptation that we succumb to. It's called sin. And I don't know about you, but I have some besetting sins, some things that just tend to catch me every time. And I go, oh, no, I'm in the hole again. (laughs) I'm in that pit again. Rats, a thing I love to hate, just got me again. Right? And if you're a Christ follower... You, you know that in Jesus, all things are forgiven. So, you, you know, you'll forget, you'll ask God, please forgive me for the sin, and you wash you, and great, great is God's grace. Amen? And his forgiveness and his mercies are new every morning, and, and praise God for that. But what we often neglect is the venom left behind. Sin has consequences. It has a lingering effect. It messes us up, and oftentimes we don't face up to that. And oftentimes, think about this, we may be forgiven of our sins, but we, you know what happens with that, that venom that remains in us? We, we may be safe from hell, but a little bit of hell has been put into us, and we don't recognize it. This series is about getting the hell out of us. <laughs> that, that didn't come across. Well, anyway, you follow what I'm saying. Getting that out of us, it's, it's about being people that, Understand that there's some bites that get us, there's some venom that lingers, a snake that's our adversary, and we're ready to say, enough! Enough of you dominating my life. I'm going to move from this, virt- from this vice to this virtue-dominated uh, life. And so to start our journey to wholeness, we have to start by identifying some of these sins that get us. We're going to start there this morning. We're going to talk about the corresponding virtues, and then we're going to talk couple minutes about the means of grace that get us from vice to, to, to virtue. The, the Bible talks about sin all over the place. It talks about it in Proverbs. Jesus talks about it in Mark. And the Apostle Paul talks about it in Galatians. Listen to the scriptures as it talks about these sins that tend to get us. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19 says this. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And he didn't change his mind. 
This is just kind of how Proverbs work. Haughty eyes, that's pride. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush to evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. <laughs> I always read this and go, really, that false list? Those troublemakers of community, they fall in the seven deadly sin things, or seven bad sins that God hates, okay? Anyway, let's go to what Jesus says over Mark. Uh, he says this beginning in Mark 7, verse 20. For what comes out of a person's heart is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Then the Apostle Paul gets his two cents in there in in his epistle to the Galatians, um, looking at chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Aren't you glad you're in church this morning? Do you feel built up yet? These are the things that the Bible talks about that get us. These sins get us. If we want to be well, if we want to be whole, we're going to begin to say, this exists, this is a problem, I need to deal with these things. And I need to deal with them honestly. Snake, bite, and venom. Amen? I need to deal with them thoroughly. And if you say, I'm not going to deal with this, then you're doomed to be over here. Because you can't ignore it. You can't say it doesn't exist. It's the reality that we live in. Now, looking at these sets of verses that I just shared with you, and of course, much more of the Bible, the ancients came up with what they called a list of seven deadly sins. In 415 AD, a fellow named John Cassian came up with a list of, of dead, deadly sins, and he, and he kind of exported it from the Eastern Church into the Western Church. And then 100 years later, uh, Pope Gregory the Great solidified this list of seven deadly sins. And they were all, um, you know, of origin from the scriptures that I just read to you. Can you guess what made the list? Do you have any idea what made the list of seven deadly sins? What would be the number one, do you think? This isn't hard. Say it loud. Pride. Pride's number one. In fact, the ancients said pride was the mother of all sins. Every sin problem flowed from pride. Well, the second two that tended to make the list right away were lust and anger. And then there's seven other ones. We're going to talk about this right now. And I'm going to give you this, this, this list. I love how this book that I've been reading um, calls them fatal attractions. It's really good reading. Sermons on the seven deadly sins. So just I'm reading sermons on seven deadly sins. Every time I read one, I go, I really feel a lot better now. Anyway, um, you know, it, but fatal attractions is a good name for the deadly sins because they are enticing and they're fatal if we give in to them. So let's walk through what the ancients describe the seven deadly sins, what I'm calling fatal attractions. The first one's pride. And pride is a problem more than we think it is. It's being consumed with self and self-interest being first and foremost in your thoughts. Uh, I'm going to challenge you, and I'm going to do this at the end of the service, if I remember again, this week. Uh, to prepare your hearts for next week, we're going to talk about pride versus humility. So this week, I have an exercise for you. Do not talk about yourself all week long. Not one time. 
When you're having a conversation, don't tell people what you think. Don't talk about how well you're doing. Just don't talk about yourself. Just see how hard that is. And next week, you'll be ready to hear the message. Second deadly sin is greed. Greed is a lot of the motivation behind our economy. Think about it. More is always sought after. More is thought of as better. We kind of live in a culture where there's this prosperity. Uh, gospel of prosperity almost. If we didn't do better this year than last year, what's wrong, right? In fact, when I give you an annual report, if the line ever goes down here, we think, what's wrong? Because we live in this culture where we think everything has to increase every year. And oftentimes the motivation behind that is really greed. And then lust. Oh my goodness, lust is an issue. It's a deadly sin. I read that almost half of the top-selling CDs today include some kind of sexually explicit content. Well, that's probably an understatement. Here's the problem. We think this is now normal. You just go to a movie and you see all this nudity and you see all this explicit stuff, and we think that's normal. And that's the problem. Amen? As we now have become so desensitized to it, we think this is just the way it is. Uh Uh-uh. Uh-uh, it isn't the way it is. It's wrong. Now, the next deadly sin is anger. I found this statistic interesting. 72% of people, when surveyed, agreed with this statement. I'm as mad as hell and not going to take it anymore. Yee. We live in an angry culture. Politics, everybody's angry. Driving, everybody's angry. Right? comes to financial side of life. Everybody's angry. If you talk to people, they're just angry. Road rage all over the place. Even in little Brookings. Even though we never have to wait more than five minutes at a stoplight, you think that was a bad deal or something. It really isn't. But at any rate, acts of violence are huge in our culture. Two-thirds of television shows include some kind of violent act. And children's shows are even worse than that. This next one is the one we all love to hate. It's gluttony. Right now, there's all kinds of studies that say we have a gluttony problem in our, in our, in our country. We don't even need studies to know that. Just watch TV. The other day, I'm watching a commercial. I'm kind of, I'm kind of sensitized to this now because I'm looking at this, right? And so I see this advertisement for a steakhouse. And I'm not kidding you. They got a steak. That puppy had to be 24 ounces. They show this big old honker steak, and then you know what's on top of it? Like a half a stick of butter melting. And I looked at that. Now, I don't know if you count calories. I count calories loosely. But I'm going, that's got to be more than 2,000 calories in that meal. How many calories are we supposed to eat in a day? Like 2,200, right? So there you go. One meal. You're done. You don't have to eat the rest of the day. But that's kind of our culture. And then lately I've been reading about this other trend. It's called inverted gluttony. Where now we have these people who are so into exercise and diet that that consumes them. That's all they think about. And that's inverted gluttony. Now they have a name for it. And I go work out quite a bit. And I see some of these folks that are, you know, they're kind of muscled up. They got nice abs and biceps and thighs and all that kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, you're working now like three hours a day. And I want to go to him and say, brother or sister, I know you have inverted gluttony syndrome. Can I help you? Because you're making me feel bad about the way I look. You know, 
But you, you, don't get, you don't get that physique without really working at it, amen? Um, man, some of the folks I see anymore, I go, woo, baby. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. The next two are envy and slothfulness. We'll get to those down the road, but you get a sense of where we're going here. Um, I want you to hear this. Hear what I'm about to say. Addressing these seven deadly sins offers you a spiritual formation plan that results in true change. See, oftentimes we judge our spiritual plans and our spiritual well-being by all the inputs. Oh, I might be doing a you know, discipleship class. I might got this good mentor over here. I got this great Christian book I'm reading over here. I'm watching these Christian DVDs. I only listen to K-Love or Refuge or, you know, so I'm, I'm doing all this input stuff. But man, I'm still lusting. I'm still angry. I still lose my cool all the time. Uh, blah, blah, blah. And the outcome isn't going along with the income. Well, income, input is what I meant. Maybe not with the income either. At um, any rate, you got what I'm saying there. Um, but but the year, this, this, what we're talking here for the next few weeks, guess what? It gives you the outcome, what you ought to look like. And that's what God, I think, is really, really concerned with. Now, talking about sin here and vices, sin must become utterly sinful to us, folks. That's the beginning point. We got to begin to see that the sin is wrong. Story is told in this Fatal Attraction book. I was reading this. Story is told of a fellow named Ross. He was like the Midas touch guy in a small community. Everything he did turned to gold, and he was well-respected and well-liked in the community. One day, he shows up into the pastor's office, and he has a confession to make. I hate these moments. They've happened to me. And he says to the pastor, my wife just caught me in an affair. And you go, oh, no. And then he said, then I had to admit to her, I've had multiple affairs over our uh, marriage. And the pastor said, Ross, you know that adultery's wrong, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, I made a big mistake. And he goes, well, I'll line you up with counseling. See, that's what we pastors do when we don't know what to do. We pawn off the people to counselors because they know what to do, right? Okay, a little tongue-in-cheek. Um, about a month later, Ross shows back up to his pastor, and he said, i got to talk to you again. And he goes, I just don't feel any better. I don't feel any better. I've admitted it to my wife. I've admitted it to my kids. I've admitted it to friends. They're doing better, but I'm not doing any better. And they talked for a while and then agreed to meet in a week again. And he comes back in a week, and he says basically the same thing, same vibe, same kind of discouragement that he wasn't really getting any better. And the pastor asked him, a very telling question. It was probably a Holy Spirit kind of question. And he said to him, Ross, do you know the difference between making a mistake and sinning? I don't know. He said, do you have broken your vows that you may be for a witness of people and God? You have not kept your vows. You are sinning when you do this. You are committing adultery. You're not making a mistake. You are sinning. And sinning needs to be addressed by admission and confession. Then you can be the recipient of forgiveness and healing can begin. And they had a great moment of confession and admission and a prayer of forgiveness. And it broke the log jam in Ross's life. And he began to be the recipient then of forgiveness and healing. Which brings us to this point, under sin must become utterly sinful. There has to be an admission and confession 
of sin. When you're over here, you're doing something wrong, you have to admit it and confess it. And then that leads to forgiveness. As 1 John 1, 8, 9 tells us, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that's the beginning point, but that's not where it ends. And oftentimes this is what the church does. It does this and it stops. And that is the problem. And we see people sinning, admitting it, confessing it, being forgiven, doing what? Sinning, admitting it, confessing it, being forgiven. I feel like it's a washing machine cycle. And the person never gets any better. You know why? Because at some point, you have to step out from being under the vice to being under the what? Virtue. You have to step out from saying, okay, I'm sinner, and you have to step into what God has for you as potential of what you can become. And that, that's what this series is all about, identifying these sins but not staying there and getting under the virtue of God. You see, we have to begin to see that God's nature is contrary to sin. That's why he doesn't want us over here because we can't really fellowship with him when we're over here. For instance, Stephen Neff said, this, and I, I'm quoting Steve a little bit today. He's a, the pastor of College Church, and I've been reading some of his materials in preparation for these messages too, and he's really insightful. But here's what he says about God's nature. Sin is inconsistent with God's nature because it is not the way he is. God is good and true and beautiful, and the law is a photograph of this. Think of the Ten Commandments. By his nature, God keeps his vows, so we should not commit adultery. God gives life, so we must not kill. He provides, we should not steal. He is truth, we should not bear false witness. He satisfies, so we don't have a need to covet. Indeed, we must have no other gods before him because, in fact, there are no other gods before him. When he tells us what he tells us to do comes easy to him because it's his nature, it is who he is. The degree to which it is hard for us, um, you know, to be like God that is the degree to which we are not converted. That there needs to be deep soul work done in us. Whether we're Christian or not, God's desire is for his people to not only keep his law, but to bear his image. And I think another analogy that the nephew used in his writings really helps us to begin to understand what God has for us. He talks about, he has some friends that love to restore old cars. And I know some of you do that in here. And so most of them, do so not because they are dissatisfied with new cars, it's just they like the classics and they like the process of restoration. When they begin the process, they go shopping for a clunker and they usually pay way more money than it's worth, the Neff says, because they see the potential in it. Not long ago, a friend, the Neff says, named Marvin, invited me into his garage where he said he was hiding a gem. All the way from house to garage, he boasted about his 1964 Pontiac GTO. It was a fire truck red. Now, I know the one behind me is 1966. Some of you car nuts are going to tell me that's the 1964. The reason being, the 1964 just doesn't look that good. <laughs> it's boxy, and I just didn't like it as much, all right? So, anyway, so he's walking to his garage. In fact, the 1964 looks like a sedan. Anyway, that, so... But so he's walking to his garage, and he opens up the garage door, and what Deneff said was that he saw something entirely unexpected. There on the floor was the red-hot GTO in a thousand pieces, each one carefully disassembled, 
and set into groups waiting its day with Marv. On the wall was a photograph of a 1964 Pontiac GTO fire truck red car. And he said, what do you think? And Deneff said, I'm speechless. Whenever a pastor says that, that means they don't know what to say to try to make you feel better. The look of my face gave me away. This was no classic. This was not even a car. It was just a pile of junk. In fact, a million pieces of junk, and I didn't even have the nerve to ask him, what do you pay for all this junk? Before I could find a diplomatic way to tell him, Marv moved from one section of junk to another, calling each piece by name, saying what he was going to do and how he was going to recreate that piece and make it look original. How long have you been working on this, I asked. He said, a long time, but I have time. It's a long process, but I have time. And though I could not see why Marv was immensely proud of his classic car, broken as it was to smithereens, even though he was very aware of his current condition, and he certainly knew better than I did what was wrong with it, he had never forgotten about its potential in the whole process. On the day he bought it, it he had a mental picture of what that clunker would look like, and that's why he paid more than it was worth, and that's why he bragged about it all the way to the garage, speaking of its future as though it had already happened. Now hear this. Deneff says this, perhaps God posts a picture of you and me on his fridge of what we'll look like once he's finished restoring us. For this reason, he paid more than we're worth on the cross. He paid way more than we're worth. For this reason, he brags about you to the angels. He says in Job, have you seen anyone like my servant Job? God's seeing the potential of what we can be. We may see parts broken into smithereens, amen? We may look and say, how can any of this work? But God sees a potential that's over here. And he says, you need to quit living over here. And you need to begin to live over here and live to the potential I see in you, amen? That's what this series is about, getting from there to hear. So let's talk for a couple minutes on virtues because the virtues need to displace the vices. Now the word virtue just means God-given grace imparted capacity for goodness. So when you hear the word virtue used in church, that's what it means. God-given grace imparted capacity for goodness. Now virtue is more than morality, it is sanctification. Morality is about doing a few good things and following some rules, that is not a virtue. That's morality. A virtue is a deep inner person change so that we look more like God, and that's sanctification. Sanctification means my life is getting set apart to God. I'm becoming more and more uh, like Jesus Christ. I'm becoming more devoted to God, and this is being accomplished usually in my life by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in me, the Word of God becoming real and active and alive in me, and the body of Christ interacting with me, and all these things you know, come together, and they're producing a person who formerly was not. Amen? And that's sanctification. So there's a picture here of what God wants us to look like. I want to paint that picture for a few moments with you. These are called virtues. Humility is to replace pride. This is where you know who God is, you know who you are, and you're just not really thinking about yourself much anymore. That's really humility. God wants us to become that kind of a follower. He wants us to be followers who are generous. Generosity should be the look of virtue for the follower of God as opposed to greed because God is by nature generous. 
God so loved, what did he do? He gave. He gave. He gave. Whenever you read about God, he's given. God's generous. We look like God when we're generous. Amen? Purity as opposed to lust. This is where you begin to see other people truly as family. Mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, and they're not objects ever to you anymore. And when you see someone portrayed as an object, it makes you mad and you crumple it up and throw it away. Because that's not how God sees you and that's not how he sees people. You're moving from lust to purity. You're moving from patience or from anger to patience. Anger to patience. You know, anger is often very impatient. It's very short. But God is anything but short. He's so patient. In the early church, they were wondering when Jesus was going to come back. They think, when is Jesus going to come back? And the answer was given like this. God's not slow in his return, as some think, but rather he's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all that comes to salvation. God is patient. We look like God when we're patient. And then the next three are abstinence and kindness and diligence. And we're going to get to these down the road. But what we're going to do is each week for the next seven weeks, we're going to talk on a vice and a virtue. A vice and a virtue. So now you have my preaching plan for the next seven weeks. Amen? And so what I expect is every week for you to look at those two elements, the vice and the virtue. For next week, it's pride and what? Humility. And I expect you to go through the experiment this week of not talking about yourself for the whole week. So you prepare yourself for the message next week. You'll be much more receptive if you go through that exercise. Trust me on it. You'll be much more receptive. But God is very interested in our outcome. As I said, oftentimes spiritual maturity is measured by a series of inputs. I take a Christian class, I do spiritual discipleship, I get a Christian mentor, I read a Christian book, I watch a Christian video series, of course I listen to Christian radio, you know, I rock on with, you know, refuge, whatever, you know, and all these inputs we think produce an output. Not necessarily. This series is all about becoming people who are output, outcome-driven. So the outcome desired is the conversion of our whole nature to reflect the image of Jesus, putting off the old and putting on the new nature in Jesus. Now, at the end of your note-taking guide, you notice this is an overall chart. I'm going to talk about that for, for like two minutes, then we're going to do communion, okay? As, as a way to close out the service today. But I, the ancients thought, okay, if I have a pride problem, and I want to be a humble person, then I'm going to work on not being proud. You ever try to become something by not being something? Don't work at all. I'm not going to eat this chicken. And all you think about is that chicken. Right? That's all you think about. I just want chicken, a chicken for breakfast, chicken for lunch. You follow what I'm saying? Because you can't become something by not being something. It doesn't work very well. And they tried that, and it just didn't work. They'd have monks, they'd go and they would say, I don't want to lust, but then you'd find out their secret light. They're lusting like crazy. It doesn't work. The way you become something here, the virtue, is oftentimes a means of grace that doesn't look related. And that's what we're going to talk about for seven weeks. And I'm going to talk about a couple of these and just tease it out a little bit so you know what we're going to talk about. So if I want to move from pride to humility, oftentimes the means of grace, the bridge, remember that drawing from last week, this bridge, means of grace, is not what you think. It's, it's not trying not to be proud, to be humble. Rather, it's becoming right-minded about who God is and who you are. 
And the more right-minded you become, the more humble you naturally become, and the more virtue-driven you are instead of vice-driven. See, the more I know who God is and acknowledge his sovereignty, his perfection, his greatness, his vastness, his rule, his control, the more I acknowledge that, and the more I acknowledge that's not me, I don't have any control over my life. You know, I, 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 if you have kids, you know you have no control hardly at all. You know, um, and, and, and we can't control the economy. We can't control most of the stuff around us. Amen? And, and so we, 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 get, we get know who God is, know who we are. Guess what? It produces what in you? Humility. The virtue. And that displaces pride. Let's go to greed versus generosity. Oftentimes, the bridge, the means of grace to get from, from greed to generosity is really hope. And where am I putting the eggs of my life into, so to speak? If I'm building up treasures in heaven where moth does not rust or destroy, then, uh, you know, moth doesn't eat and rust destroy. You get what I'm saying? Anyway, if I do that, then what happens is I'm putting my hope where? In heaven. And, and I'm working towards that. Guess what doesn't control my life as much then? Earthly material possessions. Okay. But if I just try not to be greedy, it's very difficult because all I think about is I want a bigger motorcycle. I like motorcycles. You like motorcycles, anybody? Or I want a bigger house. Or I want a softer bed. I want more food. Whatever. The more you think, try not to think on it, the more you do. But the more you go over here and say, my treasures are in heaven and my hope is in Jesus Christ, the more than that becomes dominant in your life. And that virtue then displaces the vice. So if we want to become well and whole in Jesus, sure, we address some sin things. We could do in that. That's part of the equation, but it's the only part. The rest, the more importantly, just as importantly, maybe more importantly, is we do this over here. So it displaces that over there. And you forget about it. And you become dominated by the virtues that God wants to dominate your life. Um, if you look at there's one blank I know will bother you if we don't fill it in here in this last chart, and that's the blank. If you want to move from lust to purity, then, then the means of grace is love. The biblical love is so important to move from lust to purity, to understand how God wants us to love one another. Because I tell you what, if I love you gals like my sisters, that puts it on a different level of interaction entirely. Amen? If I have that kind of love... And, and so oftentimes love is the means of grace to move you from lusting to what? Purity. But you can see the rest of the chart there. So there's, there's a seven-week preaching plan right there, the vices and the virtues and the means of grace. So now each week you can prepare for the message, amen? You can begin to say, okay, how am I doing with this vice? How is this virtue being manifested in my life? And you can come to the service ready to rock and roll, Amen. Well, I thought that was more enthusiastic than you did. But God's good. We need to finish out and do communion. Um, let's, uh, let's have just a moment of prayer. Lord God, I want to thank you for this kind of overview of the next seven weeks. And I just pray that truly as the body of Christ here, that we would be outcome-oriented uh, people, that we wouldn't be satisfied with just with input. As important as that is, it's important to have the right input. But God, we would ask really, how is it with my soul? Am I well? Am I whole? And be honest and, and deal with these areas on both sides of the equation, the vice and the virtue side. God, would you just grace us in that regard? 
And I look forward to the next seven weeks when we start getting into the real detail, uh, you know, vice and virtue, and really begin to flesh this out. I, I, I just, God, I so, I pray that it would be life-changing for us. And I pray that you would just grace the body here to even go this week saying, okay, I'm not going to talk about myself all week long. And just try to do that experiment and begin to, to uh, just have a genuine interest in God and others, Lord. Let's pray these things in your name and by your grace. And all God's people said,